Welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. My name is still Adam Duritz, and I'm here with my friend and compatriot. And I remain James Campion, and this is part four, if you can believe it, of the Underwater Sunshine Punk Cast, as we now tumble into the late 70s, where punk has blown up into the mainstream, and now what happens to it? What happens? Well, I want to start off today with one of my favorite songs, um, in that uh, All Music Guide, in reviewing this song, called it, let me get this right, arguably the greatest rock single ever recorded, <laughs> which is, like, you just don't see rock critics going out of their way, especially on a site like allmusic.com, which is, a, you know, got a lot of other music on it. Um, uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, because punk had a lot of this. They're the epitome of what, like, well, they're a one-hit wonder, except they don't really even have one hit. They just have this enormously influential song that... A one-song wonder, if um, you will. And they have record that goes with it. It's good. But um, they're just... It's like the great tragic rock thing. They have a single out. It doesn't do well. They put this song out, which is spectacular. It flops. Like, I mean, they just don't have any hits. Um, but it's uh, amazing. And uh, it's just, it's got so much heart. They have a rhythm section that's completely propulsive. They have a great lead guitar player. They have this guy, Peter Parrott, as the lead singer, who's like this quintessentially punk new wave vocal sound, almost a little like, not quite whiny, but disaffected. And he's a great writer. And the song, it's just such a great song about the effect love has on you in such a good way. The, the band's called The Only Ones. And uh, the song is called Another Girl, Another Planet. Do you know this song? I think I do. I have to hear it, though. I, I know mean, the only ones. It's a... Uh, well, here's what I'll do. I'll play it for you. I'm very intrigued, I'm sure, as I'm sure the listeners are now. I think it's worth starting off. Greatest is, song. <laughs> it's one of the quintessential songs in rock and roll because it's, just, it's such a true thing. It, it's like a lot of... The, like September Girls by the Big Star. It, it affects a million bands and a million people. Right. But no one buys the record and no one maybe hears it at that moment. But I, I it's not... That's not the first guy who's ever said to me, this is the greatest song ever. Like, when I first heard this song, it was because Steve Lillywhite, I was at dinner with Steve Lillywhite and his friend Nigel Bennett, and we were talking, and they started talking about this band, The Only Ones. And I'm like, wait, who are The Only Ones? And they said, well, they just wrote the greatest song ever. Like, don't you know that song, Another Girl on Another Planet? And I was like, it seemed vaguely familiar, but I wasn't sure. Uh, And then, you know, when I read that, I was a little astounded to read it on a music review site, essentially. Sure. But I wasn't completely surprised to read it, period, because they're not the only ones who've ever said this to me. There's a deep love for this song. Now, that was coming from two guys in Steve and Nigel, who were both musicians. Uh, in Steve's case, a, a producer who produced some of the great rock records ever, of course. Uh, the first Ultravox record is him. All the U2 records. Well, the early ones, sure. Well, he's on all of them, pretty much. Yeah. He has the closer yeah. who comes in and fixes everything. Sure, uh, sure. You know, but... But most famously, uh, War, which you and I have War, talked about. War, of course, yeah. Later. But also, like... Work with you guys. He does Walk Under Ladders work with, with the Stones. Joan Armatrading. He works mm-hmm. with the Stones later on. I think it's Dirty Work. Yeah. But his early work in the 70s is... Um, I work think with he the does, Laws. We talked about the Laws. Uh, he does the Laws record, yes, of course. In any case, it was coming from people who are very... Like I said... It's not the only time someone's ever said to me, so it's worth playing that song. Yeah, right but now it's still a bold statement. And now this is we're in 1978. Now we should yes. remind everyone. Okay, so that's pretty good. So that's 20. If you want to say rock and roll began in 55, so it's like 23 years after rock and roll has been born, and finally someone has hit the nail on the head. 
I mean, I, you can say what you want about it, you know, whether it's the greatest song ever, whatever. But it is a great song. This is a great intro. And uh, so this is uh, <laughs> yeah, this is the only is. ones with another girl, another planet. Steve Lillywhite would love that record because it absolutely has the sound of war in it. It is just the drums are there, everything's right there. It's stark, uh, trebly, um, concussive. I always like to use that word when something just totally hits you on the chin. Kind of, but it's a lot warmer than it, that. There is to a me. warmth to it, no question about it. And it's it's not, but they're they're not revolutionary songs. They're not like you know real abrasive songs about uh, about people getting massacred, you know, in in, in uh, Northern Ireland. I did hear a lot of Robin Hitchcock in that. The phrasing, the style, the very English way, the very Beatlesque, if I may say, uh, way that song is uh, structured. 
It's a great song. It's a great song. It's got it all to me. It's like got a great melody. It's completely heartfelt. It's got a outer space in the lyrics. <laughs> it's got a bizarre way of looking in love. I feel like I'm on another world with you. Another girl, another planet. You know, it's like, I'm so lost in love, I feel like I'm in outer space is what he's saying. You know, But it doesn't in like, it's not a serious way of looking at it like Bowie would. It's, it's completely... It just it it is a great song. It's yeah, a great you can, you pop could almost, song. You, very good. Yeah, you could almost hear that. La, 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 <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't have any of that, and it's got his great like this great disaffected vocal. His name, Peter Parrot, although it's P E R R E T T, is like it's like it's got one of those great alliterative like comic book uh, alter Parker. ego right. secret yeah. identity names, yeah. Clark Kent and Peter Parker. And uh, he's a good-looking guy, and he's got this heartbroken, disaffected, sad voice to him. Um, you know, I could see why people love that song the same way in a, in a different way. People love September Girls for what it, like, its understated way of saying something that really moved a bunch of people with a great melody and some great guitars and a great sound at the time. Because this is also a long way before war. This is sure. three or four years before war comes out, right? You know, right. Um, but it also has that 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 kind of melodic sensibility that Elvis Costello brings to the table that ends up, you know, transforming yeah. everything into quote unquote new wave. We talked about that in an earlier podcast here, but this is odd because you would think something like this, like Big Star, would have a place on the radio or in the charts. But that's the thing about you get the radio. Sex Pistol, you get the, the the Ramones maybe not breaking out, although they did. You don't you, you or 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 Voidoids or some of the things that we played, some of the things we will play on this podcast, not musical, not easy on the ears per se. This is. So this is odd that this wouldn't make it. Well, because the thing is just lots of stuff doesn't make it. There's only so much room on the radio and they're going to play what everyone clamors for at the moment, which may more likely be the Sex Pistols, because there's a big story there. Like we talked about in the Paul Simon podcast, sometimes the story overwhelms the song or the music, and, you know, maybe there's not an interesting story. or, or And because it's like, it's not necessarily unique in the annals of rock and roll, it's just great. And sometimes you want the unique to get people interested, and it doesn't necessarily have that. It's just fantastic and and personal and heartfelt but not necessarily arch or ironic or making some kind of a statement that something else makes. It just is great. And sometimes that'll get you forgotten. But sometimes it's just because most things are forgotten. There's just a lot of music and a lot of art always out there. And most of it, no one sees and no one hears. That's just always going to be true because there's way more artists than there are consumers for art. Right. Um, you know, that's why Van Gogh is famous now, but in his entire lifetime, I bet his brother was thinking like, or some of his friends who liked his art was like, why don't anybody like this stuff? Why can't I get this, this painting on the radio? You know, like, I mean, you got to wonder because like, here's this guy that now we consider one of the great of all time, maybe one of the two or three greatest painters of all time. And during his lifetime, couldn't get on the radio, so to speak. Sure, no sure. one bought a single painting during his lifetime. So... And yeah, he gets discovered later. But how many guys that never got seen in their lifetime don't? Do you have to be the second or third greatest painter of all time maybe to even get seen? Right. Now, where does that leave everybody else who's just really good? And it's funny. We've, sadly, we've used uh, Van Gogh at least a half a dozen times since we started these podcasts as a perfect example. I've used Melville because he died thinking Moby Dick was a disaster because everyone told him it was. And now it's the quintessential novel, uh, certainly American novel and of honestly, that period. And a so, huge pain in the ass for high schoolers. And a huge pain to ask for me, for sure. Yes. Uh, still to this day, and I am a long way from high school. But the, 
the other thing I was going to say is that it's what you're saying drives it home even stronger when you consider someone like myself who prided myself on going out and finding stuff and 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 ninety percent of the stuff that we played during this you know four part thing I've heard in some format or other. I have to be totally clean. I have never heard that song. I'm not sure I had either. It sounded vaguely familiar, but I have had you know in order to have discovered this song. I had to have had a life where I'm sitting down with Steve Lily White and uh, and Nigel Bennett because Steve has just produced Hard Candy and we're friends, so we're talking about music in the Groucho Club in in uh, London at one one night, you know, and uh, that's not available to everyone, you know. I'm not sure I ever heard it on the radio. It's possible K-San certainly could have played it when I was a kid, sure, but uh, I don't know, uh, you know. Same yeah, with maybe Big in Star. passing, you hear it in the background at a club or a uh, maybe I would have bought this box set eventually, so I would have heard it. But I don't, you oh, know, right, right, yeah. you know what I mean? I don't know. Well, that's the great thing about these kinds of box sets; they remind you of great stuff that maybe got forgotten. But you know, that's this is a long time later. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I was pouring through the, the only ones any good, right? And I'm pouring through the book now because of time and, and everything else. We've left out quite a few bands that really did have a mark on me and and also the movement. And it just goes to show you the volume of quality. Oh, yeah. I mean, we left out Blondie, who's in, as we put it, we were joking about it the other day. Deborah Harry is featured in every single issue of Punk Magazine that was ever printed. (laughs) Because they, you know, for the very simple reason that they just thought she was the hottest girl they had ever seen. And they put her in every single issue. Right. Because they had huge crushes on her. It's it's hard to understate how amazingly almost every human being that had a penis that I knew in high school was completely in love or in lust with Deborah Harry, period. They, you couldn't find anyone. Even people who hated the music found her the sexiest, uh, you know, the most, like you said, in every Cream magazine, every magazine you picked up, somebody found a way to put a picture of Deborah Harry. Deborah Harry. And, the, and, and the music speaks for itself, too. Great, great band. I, I love Blondie, but Debbie Harry is still one of the more beautiful women on earth. Yeah. You know, I see her in TV shows all the time, and I'm like, wow, she's just amazing she's so striking she has so much like i don't know gravitas isn't the word but like let me just say gravity presence yeah not serious in this gravitas but actual gravity where like the world is drawn and your eye is drawn to debbie harry because she's just got this weight about her that's just powerful right yo bob she's another planet you know (laughs) she is another planet she's another girl on another planet um bob gruen who i said i interviewed for the for the shout it out loud book a few years ago took a ton of great punk pictures took that famous picture of iggy and and her at oh. CBGB's, you know the one where like she's biting his chest or something. Yeah. And Iggy said famously to Bob, "She has great bones, this kid. She's got great bones." <laughs> and he meant the face, but you know it's fantastic. That's a great quote from from Iggy, the Godfather to uh, to Deborah Harry. But yeah, great singer. And you know what's, what was really cool for me growing up in New York? I had just gotten rid of my Bronx accent, but when I heard Deborah Harry speak, I thought, "Well, oh, she's one of us, man." I know her. I grew up with her. So it was kind of neat. She didn't have a fancy... There was nothing fancy about her. She was real, gorgeous. It was all right there in front of you. There's nothing fabricated about Deborah Harry at all. Just really cool. You know, it's funny you should mention Robin Hitchcock, um, as you did. Because I know we've already talked about the Soft Boys and Robin Hitchcock, in particular, on our second podcast we ever did, Underwater Hitchcock. We talked about it. uh, But I wouldn't feel right if I didn't point out that, like, right here in 1978-79... Like years before, a couple years before all the music we're talking about in, in that Underwater Hitchcock podcast, the Soft Boys are actually right here. And they blew through one of the most enjoyable and enjoyably bizarre pop songs ever recorded. 
and I'm going to play it for you right now because uh, it was the next song on my list. And it's funny that you brought up Robin Hitchcock with uh, the only ones, but this is an awesome piece of pop music, and it's as always with with Robin, rather bizarrely titled "I Want to Be an Angle Poise Lamp." Oh, wait, 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 wait. I want to be an Angle Poise Lamp. This is the Soft Boys from 1978-79. I want to be an Angle Poise Lamp. <laughs> swing to it that song you know it's something just swings it reminds me so much of the attractions i was mentioning as i was playing from the first attractions record which would have been the second elvis record uh, this year's model where the band just seems to be just flowing along man just it's a real great band record yeah i mean and it's a lot of the same guys that played in the soft boys that played in the egyptians too um and that rhythm section in particular is let's morris windsor and andy metcalf they're i mean i don't know if that's who's on this song i don't know i have no idea who's playing on i just know this is earlier and Man, I mean, Robin, just that band in whole, they had a real grasp on, like, 
the speed of punk, but they really had the Beatles harmonies and melodies down too. They're just like, it's like very in that last verse or last chord. I'm a man, I want to be an Angle Poise lamp. Yeah, and then the whole band comes in and they're singing us. We want to be an Angle Poise lamp. Yeah, <laughs> us. We want to be an Angle Poise lamp. I mean, it's just. What is an angle poised lamp? Is that the kind that goes on your desk that has a spring on it? Is that... In any case, it doesn't really matter what kind of lamp they want to be. The fact is... They want to be a lamp. There's a specific kind of... Not only do they want to be a lamp, but they've been thinking about the kind of lamp. Hey, they needed it for this, uh, you know, for, for the, you know, the syllables. They just needed to, they added that because it has, it works so beautifully in that chorus. It almost sounds like a sped up version of the Beatles, which I found to be... Sort of what Robin was working in with the Egyptians for a while. He would have these different ways of using. And I, I know there have been other people who have done that, certainly. Uh, Todd Rundgren and uh, uh, Jeff Lynn, we've talked about who used the Beatles and then their version of the Beatles. Uh, but that's, you know, really good stuff. And, and classic late 1970s, I assume mid, late 1970s stuff, because like I said, I think, I think uh, this year's model came out in 70, 78, because the first Elvis record is 77. I mean, there's some things going on in that song, too, though. Like, the lyrics at the beginning are, man, you're going to be a woman someday, yeah. Man, you're going to be a woman someday now. The second verse is, girl, you want to be a man and you will, yeah. Girl, you want to be a man and you will, yeah. And then the, the, the little pre-chorus are like, in your overalls, growing little wings. I've been sleeping while you've been squeaking around. Please don't tell me that you don't like what you found. And then that, ooh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like... He's, that came out of nowhere. He's getting at some stuff in there. In your overalls, growing little wings. That just sounds like, you know, like Robin, again, taking the imagery of something personal and, and beginning to talk about insects or amphibians and the, the ways they transform. You know, th- there's some sort of, like, transformative idea about the way we grow into different things or the way we dress up into different things. Ah, or the way metamorphosis we tra- I mean, again. Y- yeah, metamorphosis and... Queen, uh, uh, Queen Elvis. Sort of an... Uh, what's the word? Transformational sexuality. You know, he's kind of getting at what what kind of insect or butterfly are you going to bloom into here? You know, which is I don't know. I don't know what he's you know, or it could just be Robin's bizarreness. Who knows? But I think it's a. Uh, but it's he, not the first time. Like I said, he mentions that you know we, we talked about Queen Elvis and the yeah. idea of it, the juxtaposition between uh, expressing yourself, period, expressing yourself sexually, or expressing yourself being a star and finally getting to be who you want to be. It's all he, kind of there. That's the genesis of that kind of style. He's looking at a lot of different stuff. He sure is. It's pretty, yeah. pretty fascinating. It is. I don't really know that I remember this song at the time. It's on the, the No Thanks, the 70s Punk Rebellion box set, the Rhino box set. Uh, and it's just such a great song. I couldn't stop listening to it over and over again. There's a band. You know, we talked about, about how like women played a pretty big part in punk music. Even though they're not always remembered that way, the, the Runaways were certainly early pioneers in the late parts of it. The Pretenders, Patti Smith was, you know, possibly the original. I, I think the first person ever actually signed out we of CBGB's was Patti yes. Smith. You know, uh, and there's a band called X-Ray Specs uh, with the lead singer Polly Styrene and uh, saxophonist Laura Logic. Who, which, by the way, those are fucking great names. They are great names. And X-Ray Specs is a great name for a band. They have a couple songs. Uh, one great one called Oh Bondage Up Yours, but also, uh, which is <laughs> just so awesome. And the one I want to play you is called The Day the World Turned Day Glow. I just love the song. The lyric is so good. I clambered over mounds and mounds of polystyrene foam and fell into a swimming pool filled with fairy snow is the first verse. 
you know, the second verse is I wrenched the nylon curtains back as far as they would go and peered through perspex window panes at the acrylic road. I mean, she's just wow. she's just drilling it. Yeah. I drove my polypropylene car on wheels of sponge, then pulled into a wimpy bar to have a rubber bun. You know, as these are the verses, the last one, the x-rays were penetrating through the latex breeze. Synthetic fiber, see-through leaves fell from the rayon trees. And the chorus, the day the world turned day glow, you know, you know. I just, I, it, you'll hear it in a second. I don't know if you know this song, but I, I don't. I've always loved this song, and it was something I discovered on this box set that I didn't know before. You know, there are quite a few. It's a great set for that. I mean, aside from some of the punk standards, things like that Rich Kids song, um, Ghosts of Princes and Towers. There's some other ones that are you will get to, but um, I think at this point in the band. Laura Logic has been replaced by a different saxophone player who possibly plays better saxophone but couldn't possibly have as cool a name as Laura Logic. <laughs> it's just, there's just no way. But it, it is cool. And, and when you hear it, something about the production style or the, the way he plays sax and the vocal, it really reminds me of uh, Romeo Void, the kind of sound Romeo Void would have later on. Um, Love Romeo Void, yeah. Anyway, let me just play this for you and. Uh, uh, this is The Day the World Turned Day Glow by X-Ray Specs.
Yeah, that reminds me so much of a few things. You know, I mentioned the waitresses a couple of weeks ago. They had a sax player. They were, they were real cool. They did that uh, that, that one song. I believe it was a late 70s song called I Know What Boys Like. Oh, God, I love that song. A great song. And um, not too many bands, especially not too many punk bands, uh, had a saxophone. But it was really well used in that song. And like you said, while it was playing, the chorus is very musical. It's a musical, rhythmic, beautifully done chorus. And uh, it just fits perfectly into this period of Punk has now become. We talked about it, you know. I think in one of the last three, it's all a blur now. But um, about how Patti Smith was sort of that beginning of taking punk out of the banal lyrics or the more street lyrics and becoming more poetic. You know, there's been a license to to be more um, expressive. Well, you know, as much Lyric. as there's like real. Uh Anger and it can be hard to make out some of the lyrics in the verses. You know, there are lyrics in those verses that are pretty good, and she's really taking a shot at the plasticness of modern of modern life. You know, and for her in Britain at the time, how artificial the artificiality of everything. She's really like that's what she's taking a shot at in this song, "The Day the World Turned Day Glow." You know, she's talking about the whole world becoming this very plastic artificial place as we move into modern times you know you know and she's the song is a really angry shot at that i mean that's a real lyric there it's not just something simple she's you know she's screaming it in some place in the song but she's saying something too you know and it it can be you know i think when people think about punk and the the revolt it was against a lot of music uh they can be put off by the first thing they hear sound-wise and think it's, there's not more underneath that. Um, and sometimes it's just off, obvious that it's great stuff underneath it. Um, and it doesn't always have to be. Sometimes it's just about fun and punk. But you still have bands writing, you know, and, and people who are really thinking, and there's a lot of art school people. And in the same way there were in the 60s with, uh, you know, your... Almost uh, all of them. Lennon, yeah, Richards... Jagger, they all well, Jagger uh, went to economics school, uh, but Pete Townsend, Townsend went to art uh, school. Absolutely. Yeah, they're all coming from like art school or London School of Economics. They're coming. They're, they're, a lot of them are educated. It, it's not unheard of, and that you know, it's not with everybody, but that's true in this one too. There, there are people who are coming from a you know a different kind of background. And there are people who are still coming from those art school backgrounds, um, making rock and roll, especially in England. You know. Right, and uh, I just recently saw, and it's very good. I mean, I've, I've read probably about two dozen and reviewed about a, a ten books on the Beatles over my time as a you know a young fan and uh, as a um, as a journalist. And there's a there's a documentary. It's quite good on Netflix now. It's fairly new called "How the Beatles Changed the World," and in it they talk about the working class aspect of England uh, after World War II and the austerity of it, and how you were just expected to go along to get along. Uh, the English way, and how the Beatles really did blow that up, and then, of course, the whole English movement, uh, the youth movement towards that. And we talked about in earlier podcasts, uh, talking about punk, how the same thing happened in the 70s, and ironically enough, of those, those 60s bands were kind of used, propped up as, hey, look what happened to these guys. They became, you know, bloated, rich guys in mansions driving Rolls Royces. That's not what rock and roll is about, man. And uh, you always talk about that's not fair, everybody's pointing fingers. But I think there's the same aesthetic here, but also they're taking from The Clash a year before with London Calling. When The Clash first came out, they became the band that was speaking about the injustices of England and, and the new movement politically, um, not, against, not only just against the youth, but also against the, 
the, the black community in England and against uh, wages and uh, later on with Margaret Thatcher and that kind of thing. So I think that X-ray specs is a result of what the clash were. And it reminds me very much of that 60s art school. Hey, we don't have to do with our parents did. Why are we doing this again? And I think those songs and that song kind of reminds me of that kind of aesthetic. You know? Well, yeah, it's not. I mean, it's easy, especially when we – I don't know, easy is the wrong word. Uh, just so we don't lose perspective on the timeline here too, that they're – they are after the clash. Right. Maybe. But the first stuff they put out that, uh, hey, bondage, oh, bondage up yours, that might be around the same time because it's the same year. This is, the, this is I think, late uh, – 78 and White Riot is early 78 or spring 78 I think right. something like that. But their first song might have been right. I mean these are these are very much they're all they're all peers. They're all there at the same time. They're watching each other play in the case of uh 3 days after this record comes out, another record comes out from Susie and the Banshees. Scream comes out 3 days after X-ray Specs is at least the single does I think. But Susie is a compatriot, a peer of the guys in the Sex Pistols. She's a member of the Bromley contingent, just like uh, William Broad or Billy Idol was. Right. I mean, they're all hanging out together at the sex store. Um, she's at the TV show, the famous yes, TV show. Yes, she's the one that uh, the guy make, the Grundy makes the comments to, which causes Steve uh, Jones. Jones to go off on Grundy. You know, these people, it's a lot. These are all happening very much at the same time. So, which doesn't say they don't have effects on each other because they know each other and they go to each other's gigs. So certainly they have effects on each other. Uh, and it's not just a matter though of like, I heard that record. And so then I decided to make a record. They're all there together. They're at the same parties. They're at the same gigs. You know, the clash strummer and his band, the one Oh one ers open for the sex pistols, right? Him and Mick Jones form the clash right after that. They leave their other bands. They form the clash. That's definitely influenced, but it's not years apart. It's months apart. It's very much a scene and a timeline that's happening because, like the bands in CBGBs, these bands are seeing each other. And you have to remember that England is so much smaller that, like, everybody in England sees each other play because they all go down to London for gigs. They all go up to Manchester. They all go over to Liverpool, and they go up to Glasgow to play gigs. You right. know? And, and so, I believe in England it was more of a youth movement than it really was in America, which we had pockets. We talked about the New York pocket, the Detroit pocket later on in, in San Francisco and L.A. Uh, I, I find that because of the, 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 as you talk about, the geographical proximity that there was, and of course the fashion movement, there was a economic, gen, uh, not gender, but a generational, and then a, also a fashion combination of all these people wearing the same clothes. Hey, you can walk across the street and you see that guy's in your... In your gang, right? We've talked about how fashion yeah. connects it more in London. So, yeah. Well, we, would... we're, you know, we, in America, we have bands in Detroit that are managing to somehow influence bands in New York and bands in L.A. And we have bands in New York that are managing to influence bands in Minneapolis and bands in L.A. And, you know, the England is uh, essentially the size of the Northeast. Right. I mean, so, like, really, they all do see each other play. It's not a stretch to say that everybody... In England, saw everybody else in England play. You know, right. if people were going to make it out to see the Sex Pistols when they played in, uh, or the Stooges, or the Ramones when they played in Detroit or L.A. or San Francisco, like the Avengers did, uh, like uh, in, in Cleveland, like the guys in uh, Rocket from the Tomb and later the Dead Boys and Perubu did. If they're going to make it out to see the Ramones in those places, believe me, everybody in England saw the Sex Pistols and the Clash play. Sure. Um, anyways, let's move on to that. Three days later. 
Three days later, Scream is re- this, The Scream is released by right. Susie and the Banshees. Right. And Susie and the Banshees recorded this record, if I'm not mistaken, in about a week. Uh, so it's one of those great, you know, punk stories where they just went in there. The thing I loved about, about uh, you know, Susie in the sense where she becomes, for me, sort of the, the authenticity of being in that Sex Pistols movement, what you're talking about, hanging out in the, the sex fashion shop, knowing Malcolm McLaren, knowing the Sex Pistols when they were nobody and they were thumbing their noses at everything. So she's there. She's kind of like, like I said, uh, Dean Moriarty in, in, uh, in, in uh, Kerouac's book where he's really the main beat, you know, and the voice of Kerouac is using him uh, for, to, to gain notoriety among that group. So I think that this band, even though it comes later, does have, and I believe this is it. For me, this album is it for them. It's it's their one album that really speaks to that period uh, because it just it just reflects that period. We're still hanging on to that real three chord, balls out in your face stuff, and I just love the way she sings it. I love her voice on this record. It's just really, you could almost tell she's not really a singer, but she's authentic. There's an authenticity to her. There's a cool way in which like sort of the the stylings of people like Suzy Sue uh, and the uh, the guys in Sex Pistols, uh, be, you know, that is such a moment in the way it represents punk, starts to become this almost tribal thing as it gets to New Wave and later. And and it's really picked up by a lot of people like uh, like Adam Ant in Adam and the Ants, the sort of the, the look that they go upon. Uh, and he uh, was there too. He was there at the uh, the... the beginning too he was a fan would go to see all these shows the yeah. clash on the uh, Anna, you know bow wow wow and annabella or annabella right. annabella you know like uh in her like mohawk and sort of indian makeup american indian makeup uh and just sort of uh native american makeup is the word <laughs> i'm looking for right now i don't know um but you know that they they, they they later later bands pick up a lot of the style they're not living in the same time anymore as Susie and the Banshees were. Right, right. Like and, Billy but, Idol. This is, this, this is the transformation into the 80s, and MTV kicks in 81, 82, and now you're getting a visual representa- representation of what's going on in England, which still has a great effect of what's going on here in America, yeah. like it did in the 60s. No question about it. And that's Bow Wow Wow is an excellent example. When I first saw that band, and they all have, if I'm not mistaken, they all have mohawks. On that, on the video for that, where they're, they're on the beach and she's kneeling down and she's singing and she's just gorgeous and she's got her mohawk. And uh, funnily enough, so I wanted to mention before we play Susie and the Banshees, uh, a shout out to my friend Susie, spells her name the same way. And uh, she is the woman who shaved my wife and I's head when we got married. Did I ever tell you that story? No, wow. When I got married, my wife and I, I had two things I said to my wife. When I get married, I want to shave our heads and drive west. And we did them both. The day I wanted to shave my head at the ceremony, my wife had to put the kibosh on that. But my wife's credit, we've shaved our heads bald. And so for the first six months we were together, everybody knew we were together no matter what happens. It was inspired by, like, you know, Yoko Ono and John Lennon for me. But, That's amazing. <laughs> so thank you, Susie, for shaving our heads. It was gutsy. No one else would do it. She's like, all right, there we go. She brought the razor, and she did that night after the wedding. Fucking genius. I saw Bow Wow Wow play. They were the opening band in this concert. Emma and I both went to it. I'm not sure we went together. It was Bow Wow Wow. And Annabella was just... Is it Annabeth or Annabella? She was adorable. I mean, I fell in love Terrifyingly with her. Terrifyingly sexy and uh. under... Maybe not underage anymore at that point. Um, oh, yeah. She was very young. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Definitely in the video, she's under 18 for sure. 
What was that great story? Do you remember the story about the flying lizards when they did that cover of Money and everybody said the girl singing in it was kidnapped? <laughs> Did you ever hear that story? No, but it reminds me of the story in... Uh, <laughs> what the hell is that? In uh, the, the, the Commodore song, in Fire or... That she was... That the girl on the cover is covered in honey on the album Honey was supposedly murdered in the studio. Great <laughs> oh, stories yes. in rock and roll. Remember that? Yes. It was a roller coaster. You can hear her screaming in the background. It's supposed to sound like she's going over the roller coaster, but it's actually she's getting killed in the studio. I don't know that it's necessarily true. So... She's listed here, yes, as Annabella Lewin. All right, okay. Wow. And apparently they're still going strong, but th- she's no longer in the band. I wonder whatever happened to her. I'm going to look at that. She stopped being up. underage. She's stopped. No one uh, shared anymore. <laughs> Dale Bosio. Missing Persons, we're talking Yeah, and they were the next band that played after Bow Wow Wow that day, and then the English Beat, playing, I think, the last concert ever. Um, and I but, love Missing Persons. That woman singing is the coolest sound. They were shit. incredible, and she's wearing... These two coconuts and then a see-through <laughs> plastic bra. jacket. That's it. Two coconuts and a see-through plastic jacket. And mm. I, by the time the English Beat came on, my teenage hormones were so overloaded from that. I was nearly collapsing. But let's get back to 1978. I just want to say, if, 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 if Bow Wow Wow recorded that record in 79-80, she was born in late 66, so she was 14. Yeah. So... Definitely underage. Yes. Yeah. Shame on all of you out there. Shame <laughs> on all of shame. you. Shame. For shame. This is Susie and the Banshees hey, it's with punk, nicotine man. stain. It is punk.
about as unmusical a singing performance as you're going to hear on these podcasts. <laughs> Susie Sue. So it's also worth mentioning that while this is all going on in the mid to late 70s, you know, while the world is literally crumbling, crumbling around these people and their lives are being faced with like truly absolute horror every day, two amazing bands get born in Northern Ireland where the world is utter shit in the mid to late 70s. You know, uh, the undertones form in Derry in 1975. Stiff Little Fingers appear in Belfast two years later in 77. They look at the everyday violence that's happening in their lives and they face it in totally different ways. They reflect it in their music in completely different ways. You know, uh, the undertones write a lot of songs about love and loss and fun and, well, chocolate, to be honest with you at times. Mm. And uh, Stiff Little Fingers, they react to a lot of the anger with more anger and it's in a different way, but they're both very melodic. They're two amazing bands. Fergal Sharkey of the Undertones was one of my favorite singers when I was like in college in the years after that. He, in the late, mid-80s, late-80s, actually did a solo, some solo stuff over here after he'd left the, um, the Undertones. And he was, I think it, Maria McKee actually records some stuff with him. What I remember from knowing Maria later is that she was pretty good friends with Fergal. I think she might be on that record, his one solo album he did then. Um... Anyways, I want to play this song because it's a great song. And John Peel called this song, which is Teenage Kicks, his favorite pop song of all time. Uh, if you don't know who John Peel is, John Peel is one of the, the the main DJs on the BBC. I don't know when he started, but he was definitely there during all of punk and new wave and the 80s and 90s. Um, the really striking thing about his show was that he also had, uh, he would just have bands on the show and they would just do uh, John Peel sessions where they would just come on every year and they would record three, four, five songs, much like Gay Trotter has been in recent years. There's a million John Peel recording albums out there from every band you can imagine. It was an incredible thing he did, not only playing them on the radio, but having the bands into the BBC, which has great recording uh, abilities. And it's everyone from like The Who to The Laws. And there's a million bands that have John Peel sessions yeah, on record, just I, on record. You yeah, know? no, I don't think it's stretching credibility to say or hyperbolic in any way to say that he was the English version of Alan Freed. He was not only introducing people to the music, but he was championing it. He was going out to the clubs. He was getting these bands to come in, unsigned bands, new bands, classic bands. Uh, he became really the focal point for English music at that period. And even American bands that would show up in England would find their way to Peel's show. And uh, I believe he even hosted shows. I know that they did Peel sessions. A lot of bands did. Peel Sessions, as you said, but I think he even hosted different festivals and shows, not unlike what you guys did with the Outlaw Roadshow, getting a lot of bands to see the light of day. It makes total sense to me. Like, to me, the two names that I remember hearing, the quintessential uh, British DJs, VJs, whatever you want to call them of their time, were always John Peel and, uh, and Bob Harris, Bob who Harris, Bob right. Harris hosted the Old Grey Whistle Test. Sure. Um, yeah. One of the coolest things a couple years ago for Somewhere in Wonderland, going over to do press in England, Immer and I, we suddenly found ourselves in a in a DJ booth being interviewed by Bob Harris. And when we realized what was going on, <laughs> we, we completely geeked out. And then he called up his friend who was one of the guys from Slade to come down. Uh, it was just really cool. It was really cool. The I whole bet. thing, you know, I geeked out on Bob Harris for hours about, like, my old Grey Whistle Test uh, box set that I was obsessed with. Um his stand-ups and those are classic. If you don't know, go to YouTube or something. There, his he was so serious. 
about music. And even when he had someone on there like Alice Cooper, he would be he would just find something to say that would intellectualize whatever was happening in front of him. And I I, I always love Bob for that. And he's very relaxed in like so relaxed. he's very much a DJ. Um, who's the, I, who's the guy who used to paint with the crazy hair? Oh, that's Bob. Is that Bob Harris? A different Bob Harris? It's Bob something, right? Yeah, yeah. They, it's not the same guy. <laughs> no, but same all, vibe. You know. Um, These are the trees. That's I mean, like, it, it's funny because I remember the, the people on KSAN, you know, Bonnie Simmons. Uh, I can't remember the program director's name off the top of my head right now. And you knew Bonnie, right? Yeah, very yeah. well. But, you know, for a musician and a music geek, there are a few more important people in your life than the people who bring you really interesting music. You know, for a lot of people growing up around here, Vin Skelsa was that. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's Delight, sure. For... Uh, People out in L.A., Rodney Bingenheim or Rodney on the Rock, you know, hmm. you know, playing a lot of this kind of music at a time when nobody else is. Um, that was my dream. You know, doing this show has been a real treat for me on several levels, but also because, you know, I went to school for radio and, and television as well as uh, journalism. And one of my dream, first dreams as a kid was to just play music on the radio, not be in a band. I wanted to be the DJ that brought all the bands. I wanted to be the voice of all the bands and say, hey, listen to this, man, and turn people on. That's why when I worked in a record store, I took that damn seriously. Like the, you know, the book later on, High Fidelity in the film, um, you know, with the Cusack and uh, Jack Black. That was me. Me and my friends, we, we would say, no, no, don't listen. Put that down. You want to listen to this. And it was, you know, that was a big deal for me to be able to introduce. And those are the voices Listening to music at 1 a.m. and having someone play. You know, I, I, I've written about this and I wrote about it when Prince passed. First time I heard Purple Rain was driving at like 2 a.m. and somebody played it on, on K-Rock in New York. And I couldn't believe they were playing, you know, a pop rock at that time. I didn't realize what Prince, you know, it was before the record really blew up. And I was stunned. I got up the next morning and went right to the record store and bought it. Um, that's the kind of influence and power that these voices had. Well, I mean, I mean, since today's theme apparently is uh, great over-exaggerations in rock and roll history, um, or not, I don't want to say great over-exaggerations, <laughs> let's call it great exaggerations in rock and roll history, because I think there's a real case to be made for Another Girl, Another Planet being one of the great singles of all time. Right. And like I said, John Peel called Teenage Kicks his favorite pop song of all time. So Consider the source. Yeah, because uh, I mean, when I'm, this is a pop song from a punk band from Derry. Um, this is probably 79, I would think. By now, uh, this is the undertones, teenage kicks.
Fuck, that's a great song. Yeah, I, I have heard that song before, and we were just talking about it, but I want to share it with the listeners that a couple of things. My first thought is you're not wrong. I mean, Belfast in the 1970s was a horror show, and uh, when I was a kid, you know, my father worked with a lot of guys uh, that would, you know, were also Irish would bring kids over from Belfast in the summers, and we'd hang out with these kids and hear these stories. It was horrifying. But um, that's such a happy, peppy, fun Bay City Rollers-esque song for, for guys who are living in, in a hellscape. And it's very positive, and, and it's the other flip side of punk, whereas the English guys are writing about they're getting the anger out from what's happening in their world. That's kind of like a fun-loving version. Now, I didn't listen closely to the lyrics, but musically it just sounds very, very up and very, very bright. Well, man, if you're a teenager in a war zone, I don't know that you always want to write about the war. But, I mean, if you're a kid growing up in that time, maybe what you really wish for is just to think about a girl you'd love. My escape. You want some teenage kicks because you're not getting any teenage kicks. You want to go out, get drunk, party, whatever. You know, like, maybe what you want is, you know, teenage kicks all through the night instead of bombs. And in any case, that's what I meant about these two bands looking at things differently and taking things differently. Not that all the Undertones music is like that, but, you know, Teenage Kicks is the first song I remember hearing from that band. And, you know, it's it's just a great fucking rock and roll song. About, it is. Like, especially if you consider the setting. Like, I want to hold you, want to hold you tight, get teenage kicks all through the night. You know, wouldn't it be nice to have a night that just goes straight through with making out and getting drunk as opposed to worrying about any number of things? And that fits in in 1958. And it fits in in the early 60s. This, this is a song that... Goes goes across the time period. This some of these songs that we've been playing over the last few podcasts are specific 1970s sounding songs, and we celebrate them and we embrace them, and they are endearing to us because they bring us right back there. This song could have been done a month ago, really, or and it's reflective of any period of what good rock and roll was, and it really does harken back to your original point when we started this. Bands just want to be Buddy Holly again. Yeah, and you know and. Buddy Holly was unique vocally in, in, for his time, too, in a way. But Fergal Sharkey is really unique as a singer. He's got a... That's a voice you don't hear anywhere else. He doesn't sound like anybody but himself. It's a very yearning... But he's got all this high range and this this, this vibrato going on. That's it's like, very effeminate. It almost feels like... Well, it doesn't feel effeminate to me. It just feels higher and like this raw vibrato thing that happens up there. I just don't know anybody else that sounds like him it's just uh, I've always thought that about him he's a really unique singer and I wish his solo career had really taken off because I would love to be hearing you know in the in the mainstream of rock and roll hearing Fergal Sharkey songs you know still to this day I wish right. I was well I only use Effeminate because it reminds me of like the Shirelles or the Ronettes it, I could see oh, Phil yeah. Spector really spreading the syrup on a song like that oh yeah no he could sing the shit out of a Phil Spector song certainly you know you really hear him on that Christmas, the snow's falling. Christmas, the snow's coming down. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He'd be great on that. He sure would. So the next one we're going to play, uh, Jake Burns is a singer for uh, Stiff Little Fingers, and they make it clear from the opening of the song what the fucking song's about, which is, <laughs> there's nothing for us in Belfast. That's the first line of the song. There's nothing for us in Belfast. I mean, uh, the mess they're in, as far as he's concerned, is everyone's fault and screw both sides of the argument at least i i took it that way when i heard it that like it doesn't really matter right and wrong in this song it's a fucking nightmare to live in and he's really clear about that 
the end of the first version of the chorus, I think, is we ain't got nothing, but they don't really care. What we need is an alternative Ulster. And I think the song was originally commissioned by a fanzine at the time, maybe called Alternative Ulster. I don't know. But I mean, and the song does hit that in the chorus. But I mean, it's really about like, we need a diff. We need this place to be a different kind of place to live because it is fucking horrible. And I don't need, I, you know, I don't see many places in the song where he gets into the idea of like this, their side and the good side and the bad side. He just gets into like, there are people trying to live here and it's impossible to live here. That's why I brought up the the kids that I met in the late 70s in America that had come over. When I mean kids, I mean 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kids who were just hard for they didn't care about <laughs> the freedom of Ireland and, and the getting away from England or Catholicism versus Protestantism. They just wanted to go to school without dying. And when I went to Israel in the, in the mid-90s and I went to Palestine, that's what I heard from Palestinians, real Palestinians. I don't care about the PLO or Arafat or... You know the, the 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 you know where this group is living in that holy land. I just want to go home with my family in one piece. It, eventually, there's those people who are not politically aff- affiliated who get swept up in the violence. Well, I don't. I think in any. I'm not even sure it's that much of an eventually thing. In war zones, people mostly just wish they could go home safely. Not that there's never people who are angry too, but governments. That's been going on forever. In all these places, I mean, thank God, in in uh, it's been more peaceful in Ireland. So. Yep. Later on in the, in the song, he says, "Is this the kind of place you want to live? Is this where you want to be? Is this the only life we're going to have? What we need is an alternative Ulster." He's furious, and not in the specifics of "you're bad, I'm good, I'm bad, you're good." Just in this is unlivable for all of us, and it's a fucking nightmare. And it was a play it for you. It's also a great fucking rock and roll pop song. This is Stiff Little Fingers from Belfast with Alternative Ulster. <laughs> Oh! 
man, it's just a, they say they're a part of you and that's not true, you know. They say they've got control of you and that's a lie, you know. They say you'll never be free. Alternative Ulster. <laughs> like, that's what we need. I mean, and that's fucking a whole different way of taking it from the, uh, the undertones, but equally powerful in different ways. Still written from the, very much from the perspective of a kid. And like, at least it sounds to me like someone just caught in something. That's a great song. A Stiff Little Fingers is a really cool band. They made a bunch of really great songs with great melodic sense and great guitar parts. If, if anyone's looking for something from punk that really is more in the vein of like you were talking about, just great songs, great guitars, uh, great vocals, and you know, the undertones and Stiff Little Fingers are really, I don't know why they, you know, these two bands from Northern Ireland that just kill it to me. Derry and Belfast, and they're just right. Great song after great song, great records with like 10 or 12 songs on them each. A lot of them have been re-released uh, in recent years with extra tracks, especially I remember the, the Stiff Little Fingers records have all been either Rhino or Ryko disc, put them out with tons of extra stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, those are great bands. If you just like rock and roll songs, you know, it, it just that stuff can be played anytime, anywhere. It's timeless. That's those records are really timeless. To yeah, me. They're, I they're agree. records. Uh, I mean, I, I don't mind things sound like they are of a certain period of time, and a lot of this stuff does. There's, it could be any time. Sure. You know? I mean, that song sounded more punk than the first one in a sense, but I think it's great that you added that context to the songs, uh, not only for the listeners but for me because I got a lot more out of them. It was great the balance between one band who simply wants to. Forget about what's happening around them and just be teenagers and, and fall in love and, 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 and have their heart broken and sing about it. And uh, another one that it's facing and having something to say about it. Well, but in, to me, in both cases, they're, they're, the funny thing about those two songs and kind of why I picked them is that they're both about the same thing. Correct. In a way. They're really about, I'm a teenager living in a horror show and this just isn't good enough. You know, this is, there's got to be something else. Right. You know, I, I think they're kind of writing about what you want as a kid. They're writing about it in some different ways. They attack it from different angles, but they're both very basic rock and roll songs with great melodies and great vocals about, and killer guitars in both songs to me. Absolutely killer guitars. I love the thing you don't hear, like that, that, that guitar intro for Alternative Ulster that's just the guitar for a while, strumming, and then kind of doing these all Marshall but um kind of things sure. that you could hear like the Who doing in, in the, the middle of a, in or the, the clash. clash. Or the Clash, right. yeah. Sure. Uh, and they just like, and then, dun, 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 and then it kicks in, you know. It's uh, right, and that reminded me of the Clash in that way too, because they're 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 taking a a side, they're taking a point of view, and they're 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 bringing it out in an aggressive, passionate way. And um, again, great context. Thank you for providing the context for that, because that made those songs, and and, and learning about those bands eminently more uh, interesting for me. I can't I can't recommend highly enough just to anybody. All the records by both those bands are worth your time. They're fantastic bands. We play you these songs, single songs, by bands maybe you haven't heard of, and it's easy to think that that's the only song. But that's not true with these two. These bands have tons of great songs on... Each of them has three to five great records, I think. I'm trying... I can't remember in both cases, but they each have about three to five records, and they're great. They're all worth getting. We talk a lot uh, as a 
thing we say a lot about different bands. Everyone, nobody bought this album, but everyone that did picked up a guitar and started a band. Right. We talk Especially about with it with Punk. Big Star. Right. We talk about it with um, Velvets. The Velvets. Uh, New York the, Dolls. The, the Dolls uh, and uh, the Stooges. But I, I want to tell you, this band, uh, Howard Trafford is a student uh, in England, uh, Bolton Technology. He places a notice uh, in the college paper, and he wants to look looking for musicians sharing uh, who love... Sister Ray by the Velvet Underground. <laughs> he gets an answer from another guy, and they eventually put a band together. Howard Trapper changes his name to Howard Devoto. Peter McNeese changes his name to Pete Shelley, and they start the Buzzcocks. They have a band. They don't really. They're not really doing much yet. They go down to London, I think, and see uh, the Sex Pistols. They freak out so much. They arrange. They go back to their college and they arrange a show at Manchester Free Trade Hall, which they're going to open for the Sex Pistols and then half the band drops out before they get to do it so they don't actually open the show <laughs> but they do bring the Sex Pistols up to their first gig in Manchester maybe um, and then they eventually get a band together and they, they call themselves the Buzzcocks and um, they wrote some great songs and some you uh, this is a perfect example of like classic uh, oh, what do you want to call it like the craftsmanship songwriting Songs with great verses, great chorus, great bridges. Just the craftsmanship of songwriting put to work in a punk band. Um, Agreed. A band of its time. Uh, anyways, I want to just play a song when we talk about it. This is the Buzzcocks. Unless you have something you want to say about it. Well, I, the only other thing I'm going to say about it, when you listen to this song, I want people to pay attention specifically. What, what song are you playing? Ever Fallen in Love. Okay, so the only thing I would say about the Buzzcocks is they're fantastic. We talk a lot in, on this show, on the podcast, about bridges and connecting the dots. The Buzzcocks are a great example. They remind me in the sense of the punk version of the Rolling Stones where the Stones were seeped in blues. They only cared about blues. And they, they were a blues band, basically a cover band for the first two records. Then the Stones become, in their own right, obviously, one of the great 60s bands. And they start doing other kind of songs like Ruby Tuesday and uh, you know all the songs we know the, the Stones for. The Buzzcocks start off really just want to be the Sex Pistols. They just want to be a legitimate punk band. But then if you look at the way the Buzzcocks career went, and it goes into the 80s, they inspire the Smiths. They inspire, later on, Radiohead talks a lot about the Buzzcocks. They inspire a lot of these melodic rock and roll bands that are not necessarily connected to the punks. So they do a really good job of moving the genre in What's another direction. What's the band direction. with Greg Dooley in it? Um, Afghan Wigs? Yes. I think the Afghan Wigs cover this song, actually. Um, I mean, I, could, I really hear them on him. Immer is the one who really told me when we were younger about the Buzzcocks. He liked the Buzzcocks. It's not just into the 80s. The Buzzcocks are still around making records now. And I don't think that's the name of the first record, but there's a TV show in England that I was on. It's a very funny quiz comedy show. Um, and they combined Nevermind the Bollocks with the Buzzcocks. And in the TV show, it's, I think it's still on right now, it's called Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Oh, no, no okay. It's yeah. a great TV show. It was definitely on a few years ago because I was on it. Um, oh, that's cool. Not being as funny as I wish I was. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is a band that has a lot of influence on other bands, too. And it's funny because they start off with an ad in the paper. Does anyone out there like Sister Ray? You know, by the Velvet <laughs> Underground. If you do, let's start a band. Yeah, there you go. Another band started by the Velvet Underground. So this is Ever Fallen in Love with Someone You Shouldn't Have. The Buzzcocks. Yeah. 
That's one of the greatest songs. <laughs> I think it's a great song. Too. It's a great, great song. I love it. It's a great song, man. And you know, I love the idea of falling in love with someone you shouldn't have fallen in love with. I mean, is that not the the very essence of life in its sense? Well, if, it's certainly the essence of rock and roll life. If no one ever fell in love with someone they shouldn't have in rock and roll, we wouldn't have any fucking songs. <laughs> I mean, or just a lot fewer, or any um, songs ever of any genre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a. Uh, Nah, but either way, Pete Shelley, I think Pete Shelley's the vocals on there. It's just so good. That's a great song. You can see why people would cover it for years. It's got a melody that's impossible to get out of your head, partially because you've been hearing it for years and years. I'm really pretty sure Afghan Wigs covered that. I feel like I can hear Greg Dooley singing that song right now, or maybe I'm imagining. I don't know. Oh, it's, I would cover it. It's a fantastic song. It's just really good song, short and sweet. Great melody, wonderful little harmonies in there. Uh, it moves along nicely. Another example of songs that could have been written by Buddy Holly or been just as you know happy to be on the radio in the late 1950s. I like that break in the middle, too, where the, the drums are still... And the guitars are... He's putting that little riff thing in there. Very musical. Yeah. It's, it's got a lot of detail. It's what I meant by craftsmanship. It's got a verse. It's got a chorus. It's not the obvious chord pattern. Uh, the You know, the... It really sweeps into the choruses. It's got uh, guitar parts that go with them that are also composed. Um, yeah, it's just really cool. Another gem from 78. Um, so the next band I want to talk about, I, I, I love I love talking about this band. They're called The Members. Uh, and Because every time I look at the picture of them, it, it makes me smile. Because uh, my friend was in this band. Um, and I, I mentioned Nigel Bennett before. Steve Lillywhite's one of his best friends, Nigel. And uh, Nigel and I became friends after meeting in England. And, and uh, Nigel was the guitar player for the members. Uh, and uh, the I, I don't know if if you knew Steve beforehand or not, but the drummer was Adrian Lillywhite, Steve's brother. Uh, so I guess they, uh, Nigel wasn't the original guitar player, but I think he's in the band before they ever make a record. And they have this great song called 
Sound of the Suburbs. It's just another one of those quintessential songs. Like, uh, it reminds me in some ways of Ever Fall in Love. It's just, I don't know, man. It's I was looking up this band. I was trying to remember like why I love the members. Like this is a, a few months ago. I was thinking about this, and now every time I look at a picture, I remember. Oh yeah, it's it's fucking Nigel. And it's always like this his like boyish face in the middle of these pictures of this band just kill me. And uh, I think they were pretty uh, popular in England at the time too. Um, in the late seventies, they were one of the bands that kind of did succeed for a bit. Um, they made several records. Uh, I'm just gonna play the song because I. There's no way I'm going through punk without playing Nigel, because you know he was there, and this band is killer. And they have this singer who sounds a little like Joe Strummer named Nikki Tesco. He's really good. Um, I want to play it for you? Tell me what you think. This is the sound of the suburbs as they say in the song, by the members, 1979.
not only just the the singer, but he does sound exactly like Strummer, but the uh, just the chorus and the way the guitars are going, it's got a lot of that that um, you know the Mick Jones kind of sensibilities that he brought to the band. But um, it also reminds me of what '78 and '79 started to become, and we've already talked about it into that new wave popper poppier songs that has the lineage to the punk of the early to mid 70s but now we're really really far away from stu- the stooges <laughs> this is this is another this is very musical this is very english it's extremely uh in that realm that fits perfectly in that time period it's funny you should say that because uh you know the distance between these things in only a few years so uh the Boomtown Rats are a band that is like absolutely one of the early punk bands, you know, uh, not early, you know, early as in 77, 76, whenever their first record comes out, um, which I'm not sure. I think it's 77. Yeah, their first record 70. They make a record a year in there, uh, you know, and they have on this on the No Thanks box set. They have several different songs on it. Uh, looking out for number one. What's the other one called? A Modern Man, maybe. I, I can't remember right now, but they're. She's so modern. That's the name of the song. Um, you know, they have several hits, you know, make a place for them firmly in the punk canon. In 1979, their third album comes out. They've made three albums in three years. Great Beatlesque tradition. Uh, the Fine Art of Surfacing, and they record a song called I Don't Like Mondays. There's a girl, I think, in gets up in a clock tower in Texas or something or in a Burger King and, and kills a bunch of people. I remember she, that morning. I heard that story on the radio. Uh, that morning it happened. I yeah, remember. I remember, I remember vividly hearing that story, and and being and this was before. Now I'm not saying the 70s was a dangerous time. There there was a a, a, a skyjacking every 40 minutes in the 70s. Look it up. It's insane. Um, and obviously the we talked about the Weather Underground and Patty Hearst and a lot of things that were going on. But when a kid got up in the morning and went and shot people, that was a completely. It was odd hearing someone around my age, high school aged kid. And then they ask the kid, why, why would you do such a thing? Which we all ask, I don't know, stupidly, I believe. Why would any – is there ever a decent answer for why you shoot kids in a kindergarten or anywhere? But she says, well, I don't like Mondays. And that was reported almost immediately. This song, it seemed to me in my little kid time period, because when you're a kid, things are fast. And I'm not a little kid. I'm a, this is like junior, senior, high school. But I'm saying I'm a high school-age teenager, and it seemed like this song came out like a month later. Like, almost immediately later, they had a song about this. Oh, it's interesting, because the girl was 16 years old, too. She shot up a bunch... I'm looking at it now. She fired at school, children in a school playground at Grover Cleveland Elementary in, in San Diego. Right. January 29th, 1979. So it's later on that same year. And uh, My senior year. He's, he said no. he's, re- he's reading a telex yes. report at Georgia State University's campus radio station, because he's there playing a gig. And this comes over the telex, and he's reading about it. And they had just been, strangely enough, contacted just before that by Steve Jobs who wanted them to play a gig uh, for Apple because he loved the band um, which is why the first line in the song is the silicon chip inside her head gets switched to overload right you know that uh, he was thinking about that because he had just been speaking with Steve Jobs pretty early on 1979 right, right. You know? yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I was born in 62 September so in 79 January I'm 16 as well so this really did hit me in the face I remember specifically this whole story just being really, really traumatic. Not traumatic, where I was like, oh my God, I, this could be me. But you always hear these stories about when Patty Hearst, the whole thing happened to Patty Hearst, and a lot of parents then, or even young people were like, holy shit, you know, there for the grace of God, the old you know, saying. 
you're you're lost or you're you don't like where you're at, and then all of a sudden you get sucked into a different world. Um, this girl snaps and shoots people, and then has the wherewithal to to put the gun down and say, "Well, well you know, I've got something I'd like to say about it." You know, they have a there's an uh, explanation here on Wikipedia by. Um, Geldof, he says, I was doing a radio interview in Atlanta with Johnny Fingers from uh, Boomtown Rats, and there was a telex machine beside me. I read it as it came out. Not liking Mondays as a reason for doing somebody in is a bit strange. I was thinking about it on the way back to the hotel, and I just said, silicon chip inside her head and switched to overload. I wrote that down. And the journalist interviewing her said, tell me why. It was such a senseless act, you know? It was the perfect senseless act. And this was the perfect senseless reason for doing it. I don't like Mondays, you know. So perhaps I wrote the perfect senseless song to illustrate this. It wasn't an attempt to exploit tragedy. Uh, and I kind of brought this up, I mean, not so much because of the song itself, but because this is a band that is firmly a part of the punk canon. But at this point on their third album, he is reaching for an entirely different... Uh, thing emotionally on the song musically the way it's composed the heartbreaking senselessness of it, it it doesn't sound like a punk song at all and there's still other stuff on the album that is on fine art surfacing is you know got a lot of great guitar songs but he you know by this time in 1979 people are reaching for you know as as you always do the kinds of things that get you booted out of the punk club you know writing a song that's well let's face it everyone listened to the song became a, a massive 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 hit and it's been covered. It still to this day is. I, I feel like in the last year I've seen two versions, uh, modern versions with a woman singing as the outro song and the closing credits of films where like people have recorded. I looked on all music. There's like 50 covers of this song or more. Everyone covered this song from Bon Jovi to whoever. And uh, It's timeless because think of what we're going through now. I feel like I've heard these two, in just in the last year, these really slowed down electronica female singer versions of this song on the ends of movies because it still has the power sure to be very uh, evocative. Anyways, you know, it's almost 1980. The music is becoming more a part of the mainstream at this point, and people are actually having hits, serious hits, big hits. Bands are becoming more established, and this is a band that, you know, their first album is 77. It's a total punk record. And now this is the Boomtown Rats with I Don't Like Mondays. Shoot. Ooh, 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 ooh. The whole 
stay down The telex machine is kept so clean And it types to a waiting world A mother feels so shocked Father's world is rocked And the thoughts turn to their own little girl Sweet sixteen ain't a peachy keen Now it ain't so neat to admit defeat They can see no reasons Cause there are no reasons What reasons do you need? Somewhere in the early aughts, I was asked through the Aquarian Weekly to do a list of my top 20 or 15, I don't remember now, uh, greatest protest songs of the rock and roll era. And um, I don't remember much about my list, and I should try to find it. I don't think it's on my website, but I remember the only two punk era ones, which is weird because that era is rife with protest songs. But this song was on it, and Anarchy in York, UK, which we, we, we played in an earlier podcast. But I put this one on it because it's not an obvious protest song, but it's, it is a protest song uh, about violence, about um, uh, teenage despondency. That was different than, I think, a lot of the other songs. He's not giving sympathy, but there's an empathy to what is happening to this child who's a child who is enacting 
unspeakable violence against other children. And, and that's what drew me to Warren Zevon to want to write about him. That's what's drawn me to a lot of songwriters who see the darker side, the humanity in it, because we realize that it's very easy to say this is a monster, this person's a harsh, this person's insane. But they start off in the morning, a kid. They start off, what happens to them is their own story. And I think in that song, he gives you all the different sides of the story, which I think makes it one of the great understated protest songs. He's not in your face with it, but he's, it's about gun violence. It's about despair. Uh, it's sort of a, a quiet despair, not an obvious despair like we talked about with Belfast or England or, or, the, or, or New York City during its, its tough times in the 70s. So I, I think that's a fant- – you, you mentioned while I was playing that you almost didn't play it, and I'm glad you did because it's bringing all this stuff back for me. Well, you know, I think it's, it's utter – I think one of the, what he's really trying to say is that along with every other time this happens, it's utterly senseless. That even if you do have a motivation for it, it's utterly senseless. There is no, as he said, he he doesn't even really get into her motivation. Because there are no reasons. He sings it. He just sings. He just says silicon chip inside her head. Like she's just like, whatever the reasons are, it's it's horror. And there's no reason for this kind of horror. You know, it just there's nothing she could ever say that would justify why you would do something like that. There is no even if any reason you had would be utter utter bullshit. So it's 1980 now, which is a pretty apocalyptic year in a lot of ways, especially here in America. You know, we don't go to the uh, the Olympics in Moscow. Uh, the Russians don't come to the... No, the Russians do come to the Olympics. Is we don't go. We don't go? Or is yeah, because 84, this? they don't come here. 84, they don't come to L.A. We, right. do, we don't go to right. Moscow. And the, Iran, the, uh, the Iranian hostage crisis is rolling along here that happens during this year it, it's a lot of uh it was the world's tra- very different it was traumatic for me i remember thinking on new year's eve i'll never forget it that on wnew fm they play won't get fooled again right before midnight we we're in my car we we're in a car my friends and i were leaving a party so i was in a car with my friends at midnight when the decade flipped and you have to remember i don't remember when it turned 1970 i mean what was i eight you know yeah. seven um but I absolutely remember the 70s. When it turned to 1980, it seemed like, the fuck? The calendar seemed odd to me, like there would be an eight. You know what I mean? It just seemed like everything was the 70s. Ali was always going to be the champ. <laughs> you know? Kiss was always going to be cool. And, <laughs> you know, I don't know what it was. It was just like the weird—1980 was very, very strange. You know, I, I remember a few things about 1969-1970. Mostly I remember we were away on a trip, like fishing or something. I don't remember. We drove back to Boston in 1969, late one night. And uh, we sat up late. My parents let us stay up really late to watch Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. And I remember the television against the stairway in the little duplex place we lived in. The stairs diagonal behind the television and the moon landing on the TV, uh, you know, blearily, because I'm half awake, half asleep watching it. And I don't really remember what happened in 1970, but I think it, it had to have been, like, hopeful in some ways. We were still at war, but we just landed on the moon, and that war was a long way from here, and uh, people were protesting against it. I don't, I don't know. I just, 
I remember 1979 into 1980 very clearly. Because Clear, sure. Because I, I remember scared. the Jets winning the Super Bowl. The Mets, I remember coming home from school and everybody watched the Mets. I mean, we grew up in the Bronx. I was a Yankee fan. But when the Mets were in that World Series and they played all the games during the day, we used to run home from school and watch. They'd be in the fifth inning, you know, when we got yeah. out. of. And, and, and I remember specifically the, the moon landing. Oh, that, those were all vivid. <laughs> but I didn't realize 69, 70, those numbers meant nothing to me, you know. No, I don't think they did either as, as, as numbers that way. I'm just trying to think of what was going on. Uh, you know, in, in 79, 80, you know, the, the embassy having been overrun in Tehran, it was scary. People were scared about what was going on in the world and what was, you know, previously thought of as like the safety of being American or American right. uh, sovereignty. Like uh, Ronald Reagan got elected, which seemed really weird to me. Uh, no one I, that lived around me uh, voted for him. You know, in Berkeley, of course, it, it wasn't the way it was. It's Oakland at that point, but still, no one was into Ronald Reagan. But a lot of people were very, very... It wasn't just that he won. He won in one of the biggest landslides, if not the biggest landslide ever. People were scared. They were worried about inflation. There were lines for gas. Mm-hmm. At lines, you know, you, in order to get gas for your car, you had to get in line. And you had to have an even number, odd number days. So yeah. if your license plate, I made my, my friends and I, being young entrepreneurs, we used to get donuts and coffee at, at uh, Dunkin' Donuts at like 5 a.m. and go to the gas lines and sell them for like, an, you know, a jacked up price. <laughs> Little scumbags. We, were, we made so much money that summer. But people would buy a donut and a coffee in the morning because they had to be sitting there for hours. We'd sit on the gas lines. We'd, we'd make sure we were there like in the middle of the line. So you were... Yeah. <laughs> I remember that vividly. It was bad. There was a uh, energy crisis. There was certainly a safety crisis, as you mentioned. It, nothing will be as bad, especially for this area, as nine eleven. But that, it had a lot of the same overtones. We all hated the Ayatollah. We all were afraid of what was going to go on in the Middle East. We all had that as kids. Yeah, I mean, and we were just scared. I mean, I think that like it, it was impossible to conceive of something happening like nine eleven. But having your embassy invaded. And Americans on what is considered American soil, taken hostage for a for year, months, yes. was was uh, inconceivable. Is what it was. Yeah, I mean, was the the closest thing that we came to to something like nine eleven back then. It seemed like an invasion. It seemed it was scary to people, and for a lot of people, they felt safer with Ronald Reagan. Where they were, they weren't. And for a lot of other people, they felt more terrified. We worried about nuclear war. There were television programs in England, miniseries. You know, the first miniseries I really remember is Roots, of course. But the second one I remember is, is uh, I can't even remember what they're called. The one in England was called Threads. The one here was called, I don't even remember what it's called. But it was about nuclear apocalypse and how everyone slowly dies afterwards. Right. Um. I guess Holocaust was the other big miniseries. But, like, that was what everybody watched on television. Everyone right. talked about every day. Number one book in America for, like, two years during that period was Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. People were into the apocalypse. So the idea of the ending of the world was real to a lot of people, the duck and cover uh, generation. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The, uh, the anger and the violence that is being expressed a lot in punk music, you know, the uncertainty of the world that they were looking at from where they were in Thatcher's England or in New York City or Cleveland, you know, the uncertainty and the fear that they saw in life and the world and the anger they felt about it. Well, a lot of people felt that 
if they didn't necessarily identify with the music, they felt a lot of that in the mainstream by 1980, um, all over the world. And, uh, this next band doesn't really have anything to do with that now that I think about it, but it's all 1980. So I want to bring it up, but I do remember this record, uh, the first album by the pretenders because man, that was a band like in the same way that I thought of the stones or the Beatles where I knew every band member, uh, they were all unique in their own ways. Somehow they all fit together into something really cool, but they were each utterly unique. I thought Martin Chamber and and Pete Farnham were this incredible, very uh, original rhythm section that left all this space for James Honeyman Scott, who was a completely unique guitar player, just slashing blues and rock and roll lines, but played with razor violence and like... Uh, not just a chugging or a strumming, but like lead lines that just slashed in through verses. Um, Whose admirers were counted Clapton, Townsend. Everybody loved this guy because he was unique and one of a kind. You know, and it's funny because we're we're so familiar with the Pretenders having been around for a long time because Chrissy Hyman managed to make the band last with different versions that were very different. But this original version of the band barely lasted a year. They made the second record... And I'm not even sure if it's before it's out. Uh, they fire Pete Farndon because he has become his drug addiction, his heroin addiction has just become too much for for him and them to handle. They fire him, and like three days later, I want to say, James Honeyman Scott dies of a heart attack from cocaine. He'd done a bunch of cocaine one night, and within a year, Pete Farndon dies as well, even though he's no longer in the band. Um, it is amazing. This is one of the greatest, and I know, I know we've been dealing with hyperbole throughout this whole podcast for some reason, but this is very true. I count this as one of the great debuts in the history of rock music when I talk, when you talk about The Doors' first record or Guns N' Roses' first record, your first record, my friend. Uh, some of the great debuts where a band just completely coalesces for this statement and says, here you go. Now, what I do with The Pretenders is I put them almost like in the band even though Boston, right, had the second album that was okay. It's almost like, what happened to Boston after that first record? Like, what happened? The Pretenders, half the band dies. They have the whole future out in front of them. Great songwriters, great musicians, as you point out, an excellent lead vocalist, and an excellent voice for women, Chrissy Hind, who had a total connection to English punk, as well as her mid Midwestern, you know, excuse me, Middle America, Ohio roots. They had everything going for them. And half the band dies. And this album has... Please listen, if you do nothing else after this podcast, listen to the first Pretenders album from the first song to the last. You will find every kind of music homage in it. You will find all the great styles. You were just playing me a couple of songs. It was, it was almost impossible for us to choose one song over this thing to play for you guys. They're, they're an incredible band. And I, mean, I just named you the, the drummer and the bass player and the guitar player, all of whom were mind-blowing to me at the time. But yeah, let's get to the lead singer for a second. Because she is like this punk version of Joni Mitchell. She has Joni Mitchell's complete freedom from... Excellent. I'm not just singing in rhythm to a verse. I'm going to sing. I'm going to express every little thing I want in each line. I I will make word for word. I I will detail the way I sing. One word to another. She spits things out like punk. She talks and yells things in songs um, to, to, to... make it jut out from her singing. She refuses to just be a pretty voice, and she's got a beautiful voice, but she refuses to just sing a line. She sings, speaks, talks. Uh, it's halfway to rap, 
the speed of some of her lyrics and when she's just throwing out there like on on things like uh in the weight she's incredible and she's a kid from ohio she uh takes off to go to england in the late 70s because she wants to the punk thing is like exciting to her she takes off and goes to england she gets a job writing for nme someone helps her gets her a job writing for nme she joins a number of different bands isn't there she, some hypocritical story about her almost marrying sid vicious or something Oh, I don't know. There's some crazy story about how she wanted to get a, a a working visa or something. Something happened in England with her and Sid Vicious that became part of the mythology, which could be a whole other podcast, the mythology of rock and roll. She's, she's in this one band called Masters of the Backside, which I'm sorry, that's just Masters of Ass. <laughs> I mean, I just she's in all these bands. I wish I could remember all of them. You know, uh, but she's over there early, too, because she goes over there oh, yeah. in 75 or something, 76. She's over there before, before punk starts. Just getting out of Ohio and going to check out some rock and roll somewhere else. Uh, she puts a version of a band together with Martin Chambers and some other guys from some different bands. And I can't remember what bands. They come in and they record with her. And I guess one of the guys who's recording her says, look, this stuff's good enough. You should just get a permanent band. You should make a real band. And so she finds Pete Farnan and James Honeyman Scott. And I don't think they have Martin Chambers yet. They have a different drummer. And they do some more demos, and then they get signed, and they make the first record with Martin Chambers, the drummer. But they're a completely unique band to me. They don't sound like anyone else, because she never sounds like anyone else. There's later versions after they pass, they die. The second album, they've already made it. She, but it's makes, not the same band. It's amazing. It's I mean, the second the album same. mostly is. I think Pete Farnham might not be on it, but the third album. They're both, they've both passed away. And she gets like Billy Bremner from Rockpile, who played with Nick Lowe right, right. and Dave Edmonds in Rockpile. And she gets him to be the guitar player. And I can't remember who comes in to play bass. And they make a great record called Learning to Crawl. Has that 2,000 Mile song, which is a huge Right, and she hit. writes a song about them dying in uh, working on the chain gang. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Learning to Crawl is a truly, truly great album. The only thing that separates it from the true greatness of the first album is that it's just not the same band. Correct. But it doesn't, it's not any less of a great album. It's just different. It's a lot more mainstream guitar oriented because they don't have She's James still Honey a great Scott. songwriter, but that band, that record is a time capsule. There's nothing like it. There really for isn't. like, when I listen to these songs, I think of all four members of the band, each of them as they're playing in a way that I do on the Stones, you know, because I know everyone who's in that band. I think of it with the band. Um, you know, there are bands where I'm thinking of how unique each member is, but there aren't that many. And uh, these guys, well, this is Tattooed Love Boys. This is The Pretenders, 1980, from the first album. To me, 20 doors. Around her hearts, black and blue, the two love boys I tore my knees up, get sent to you, cause I needed I found out what the thing was for, I've been reading A man time came to explore I went eight fire, cause I thought Like I like it, little tease But I didn't need it But you mess with a good star, you gotta pay A good time was guaranteed for one 
show me what that holds
stuck both songs in because <laughs> that, that second song was The Weight. The first song was Tattooed Love Boys. The Tattooed Love Boys, like, the weird, like, cut time, the, 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 I don't know what you the call it. Seven, that. eight time in the yeah. verse that goes to the straight time in the choruses and, like, the almost, the almost rap, like, spitting pattern, the weight. I said, weight child, pacing child, fourth and back child now hurts. Weight child, bus stop child, late come child hurts. The weight child, pool hall child, pin table now hurts. The weight child, magic child, work it on out now, work it. <laughs> like, I mean, fuck. She's just like spitting thought and lyric out there. And she's been writing for a while. I, I mentioned a couple of things I wanted to mention. The the story, which is still like, I, I she told the story to journalists apparently in 2014. I had heard it or read it somewhere where she was actually in England in 73 through 76, they were going to kick her out of the country because she didn't have she had a work visa and she, wasn't, she couldn't get a job. So she went to Johnny Lydon, um, Johnny Rotten, and asked her to marry her so she could stay in the country. And of course, in this classic Johnny Rotten fashion, told her to go fuck herself. So Sid Vicious, in a weird sort of gallantry, decided, okay, I'll do it. They actually got to the registry's office and it was closed. So they said they'd go back the next day. But then that night, Sid Vicious got arrested for taking someone's eye out with a piece of glass, according to records that were happening at the time. Classic Sid. So, um, who, you know, as we know, famously stabbed his girlfriend to death. So um, there's a, there is that connection to the Sex Pistols, but also that connection to her writing these songs for a long time, gestating them, building them to get to this record. So this is a, lo- this is a legitimate live band that went into the studio and know what the hell they were doing. And I also want to say that it's reflective I know you were you were busting my, my balls and rightfully so for pointing out that there were no guitar solos in some punk songs and I maintain that what I was saying is there's no virtuosity to the solos there's no hey look at me I'm gonna solo now for three four five six measures which became the thing there for a lot of bands in the late 60s early 70s more so some bands than others the Allman Brothers the Grateful Dead Pink Floyd but in this song that is a legitimate guitar solo. What he's doing there is a concentrated virtuosity of his guitar playing. And completely it's unique. beautifully unique. He's taking some sort of like classic rock and blues style of guitar soloing, but he's putting it in this blistering, uh, in the breaks. The, the band is just playing this blistering pace, and they're just like opening up for him to do it. And then crushing back in with a... It's... it's He's out of this world as a guitar player. He really player. is. I mean, he's replaced by a great guitar player in Billy Bremner, but still, nothing ever has the the knife attack razor love of James Honeyman Scott's guitar playing. He's just one of a kind. Yeah. And this band is the perfect band for it. And they, But they're all in that together. She's a completely unique singer, and they're serving the same purpose there. You know... Bass playing in the weight is fantastic. Yeah, it's just a great band. The drummer's nuts. I just saw them last year, last April, open up for the Stevie Nicks show because Waddy asked me to come when I was interviewing Waddy for the Waddy Wachtel for the Zevon book. And the Pretenders opened up, and she looks amazing. And they're kicking ass. And the drummer's there, and he's this guy's got to be in his mid sixties, late sixties, and he's kicking it on the drums. So she's out there singing, you know. But I mean, he's pounding away, and he's a very physical drummer. So yeah, you know, and she's really cool. Uh, twice, I think. Um, I was at the, the my first manager was also managed the B-52s and so I was some of the first concerts I was ever really backstage at were B-52 shows in LA at Universal and Crit, the, the Pretenders were opening those shows uh, and then later I, I think on 
Desert Life, we were playing here at the Desert Life or Satellites. We were playing at Jones Beach, and the night before us was Neil Young uh, with that Stray Gators band he had, and it was uh, on the Harvest Moon tour, I think. Um, and the Pretenders opened, and I, I remember like getting to see Chrissy Hind again and talk to her again that night. First time had been before my first record even came out. Um, and she was just so cool to me both times. And also because he was in Neil Young's band, Duck Dunn, having Duck Dunn come running up to me from, you know, Booker T and the MG, sure, the, sure. the guitar, the bass player on all of those Stax Volt songs, yep. uh, having him come up to me and, and work with T-Bone too. Yeah. Talk about loving Counting Crows, you know, and That's his, great. uh, he was so cool. And I, I was so in awe about just being there speaking to Duck Dunn and I was so happy at talking to Chrissy Hind again that those were just those nights are kind of scarred into my brain when I was starting out as a writer we gotta wrap this up soon we have a few more songs we have to talk to you about um, when I was starting out as a writer there were periods of time where I thought to myself thank God I'm a good writer because I'm not a good enough singer and there were other points where I thought thank God I'm a good singer because I'm not a good writer and they were both really hard to deal with. And, you know, when you're starting out, the truth is you're not that good, no matter who you are. It takes a while to stop, for most people, to stop singing like other things that you know are great, to stop writing like other things that you know are great, to, to really find your voice, grasp the idea that maybe just what comes from you is good enough. Some people never get that, you know. And uh, there was a real period, though, where I was really thankful that I could write. Because I just thought I was a very boring, shitty singer. Um, and uh, one of the things that really got me through a lot of that period was uh, my discovery of Jim Carroll Band. Uh, we talked about Jim Carroll in one of the earlier podcasts about him being young as a writer, writing poetry in his teens, getting published back then. Basketball Diaries. Basketball Diaries. Um, and, you know, if you've seen, there's a movie about Jim Carroll starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, as a really young Jim Carroll. But I remember when Catholic Boys came out, really loving people who died, and maybe even more so because I was a little older, a few years later when I was really writing my first songs, when Dry Dreams came out, and they came around to play. And I saw the Jim Carroll band play a couple times in San Francisco, I think at the Stone, on the Dry Dreams tour. Um, And it was really cool because he was a poet, you know, and he wrote. He wasn't necessarily much of a singer, although I thought he was really cool. But in the classic description of what singers are, you know, people wouldn't have thought of him as a singer necessarily. But he could really write. And it worked. I was, And so I was really... I got a lot of confidence out of watching him because I felt like I wasn't much of a singer either. Um, especially then when I was 18. But I was really excited about writing. And that I had, was sort of developing into a writer. You know, I felt at the time. Thankfully, there's no record of that. <laughs> and you're all going to have to take my word for it. Mm-hmm. I got better later. I'm actually kind of happy that none of that was released. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jim Carroll was a big deal for me because of that. And I know when we were talking about doing this, one of the first things you said was that you really wanted to play uh, some Jim Carroll band. Uh, what was uh, what was your relation to that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that story because that's one of the key notes of uh, – the book that we're working on together that I'm compiling from the transcripts of the interviews that stood out a few times. First time you and I spoke in 2008 when Wonderland came out and we were, you know, really waxing. No, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. Sorry, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. We were waxing poetic about 
Lou Reed, and then later on in Wonderland, you put uh, um, uh, the first song on the record. Palisades Park. Palisades Park, and how Lou died when you guys were here in New York working on the record, and how that infused it. Uh, But we both always made time to put Jim Carroll in there. And then you told me the story about how you wavered back and forth with, oh, God, Jim Carroll can't sing. I could do that. And then, you know, or, oh, my God, I could write like Jim Carroll. Maybe I can make it. And I love that, 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 that combination of giving yourself an out because you had two talents, obviously. Well, but and you had kind of, discovered those talents. It wasn't that he talents. can't sing, yeah. I can do that. It was really that, like, he he's can not write. what everyone would consider a singer, but he's a great writer. writer. And it's enough to be a great writer. I can Maybe I can work on the singing and I can get good because I didn't feel like I was good at all. And, you know, but, you know, his strength was the writing. And maybe if I can learn to write well enough, that'll carry me through until I can learn to sing well enough. Right. And the punk, yeah. we've been talking about this for, for four podcasts now, but the punk idea of anybody can pick up an instrument and go for it is not necessarily true, but it does resonate. When you hear Jim Carroll, you think to yourself, well, this guy's not a singer, but he clearly is a great writer. And... Uh, the song that I would like to play and, and, and Adam agreed with was, uh, and you mentioned uh, People Who Died, which is on his first record, Catholic Boys. And, and it's a really great record. Uh, it, it straddles punk and kind of street music. But the reason why I love this song is because it, it really brings everything home for me from the whole 70s. The People Who Died is, it, it talks about New York and it talks about all these friends of his growing up in New York. And clearly these people have no future. The No Future that is sung over and over again by Johnny Rotten in, uh, in, um, uh, in many songs, specifically um, God Save the Queen. and Also Johnny Thunders in Born to Lose. You know, that- right. This idea, no future, no idea. And he's now looking back on the 70s. He's now looking back at these. He's older now. And all these guys that he knew are gone. And all of them just in, in really sad ways that might have seemed romantic if you're – Jimmy Dean or Jim Morrison, but if you don't get to be Jimmy Dean or Jim Morrison and get to be famous and and die young and leave a good-looking corpse, you're just some dead kid. And that's what this song always spoke to me about. When I heard it when I was 17, just like uh, I Don't Like Mondays, it hit me like a brick. And still to this day, I'll blast it in the car. It it gets me every time, and it's got the punk, all the stuff we talked about, the punk aesthetic, but it's looking back. It's retrospectively like a great writer encapsulating that period of New York where a lot of kids just died. You know, and he he does it in a great storytelling fashion. He has that in common with, you know, the Lou Reed's Velvet songs. And a lot of Lou Reed songs like Coney Island Baby, he really tells the story of all these people. And he paints a picture of that world. Sure, like Walk on the Wild Side. He uses the names the same way Lou did. Yeah, in the, the streets of New York, he paints the picture of all that in a way that, you know, you wouldn't think of him having a lot in common with someone like Bruce Springsteen, but he's painting a picture of a place and a time that really does resonate for me in the same way those Bruce songs did, which really painted for all of us a picture of New Jersey uh, a few years before that. And, uh, and, you know, and then echoing something that's later when hip hop really comes into its own. And we start to hear the songs of the violence that went on, especially in the LA, the West coast hip hop scene. It's in the East coast songs too, but it really comes out when you first hear NWA and a lot of the West Coast bands of what was going on in Watts and in Compton. Um, and they're dead friends. And, the, you know, it's, it's, it's in the terms of a different kind of thing. There's violence in those streets and gangs. His has more, you know, in Jim Carroll's, it's more to do with drugs, but there's violence in there too. Sure. And, you know, he's really painting a picture of a place and a time. It's very vivid. It's, and also, you know, what's interesting about this song is it's not a short song. It's not a two or three minute song. It's a five minute song. He has a little more to say and he spreads it out over 
he really it's a it's quite a wide broad tapestry you yeah know? and that that last verse where he sings I, I i loved you more this song's for you my brother when he actually talks about somebody that was somebody he ran around with when he looks over and cross and says that that was me that could have been me so i need to sing for him so he's like the voice of all these lost people. The way the NWA was the voice for all the, all the kids who died from gangbangers, who didn't make it because of some violence in the street. And uh, cops in and, LA. And cops, you know? yes, good point. And, and so it's all in there. It's all in this song. And Jim Carroll absolutely, uh, while he is no Lou Reed, um, he definitely does reflect that, that period just as well. And, I, and I'm so glad. I know we have one more song, one more band that we, we absolutely must play to end this. But for me, this takes us from the Velvet Underground where we started four podcasts ago to what Jim Carroll is singing about right here. This is Jim Carroll Band, 1980, from the album Catholic Boy, People Who Died. Genesis the Clue, he was 12 years old. Fell from the roof on East nine. Kathy was 11 when she pulled the plug. 26 reds and a bottle of wine. Bobby got leukemia, 14 years old. He left at 65 when he died. He was a friend of mine. Those are people who died, died. 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 They're all my friends. They just died. She broke in church. He let the gimmicks go rot. So they died of hepatitis in Upper Manhattan. In Vietnam, bullet in the head Bobby O did on Drano on the night that he was wet They were two more friends of mine From a cell in the tombs Judy jumped in front of a subway train Eddie got slid in the jugular vein And Eddie, I miss you more than all the others And I salute you, brother
up in Manhattan. Slime Vietnam took a bullet in the head. Bobby OD'd on Drano on the night that he was wet. They were two more friends of mine. I miss them. They died. That was Jim Carroll band, People Who Died, 1980. Um, we're kind of coming to the end of it here. The it's last been a band long, we want to talk about. Strange trip, my friend. Uh, I just, I, 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 when we started doing this, the only thing I was sure about when we first started was that I wanted to end with this song, um, just because it's so sad, kind of poignant. Um, Joy Division was a really cool band that, that was barely around for two or three years. They made. An EP and an album, and then uh, before their second album, they made an EP called an, Unknown, an Ideal for Living, and then uh, Unknown Pleasures is their debut album in 79. Um, their singer, Ian Curtis, is such a cool, original singer, so different from anyone. Um, you know, he had a lot of problems. He had seizures, he had epilepsy, um, and he suffered from depression as well. And, uh, but the epilepsy, I think probably with the lights, he had a lot of trouble after a little while playing live. He would get seizures a lot on stage and, uh, that must've been pretty scary. And they were just starting to have some success, um, in 1980 and they were poised to go on their first big American tour. Uh, and the night before they left to fly to America, uh, he committed suicide hung himself in his hotel room at age 23. He was pretty young. Uh, and the record, their last record, Closer, was released a couple months later. And this single was the, the single from that record. And it was the highest. That record and the song are the highest they ever charted. Um, the rest of the band didn't want to continue on without Ian as Joy Division, so they changed their name to New Order and continue to enjoy a long, successful, brilliant career as New Order. But Joy Division was a pretty unique, interesting thing that only lasted for a couple years um, and ended very tragically, which is maybe where a lot of this was going in some ways. Um, for some people, the, the punk movement ended in drug addiction, violence, tragedy, in the case of uh, uh, Sid Vicious... Uh, for other people they made the shifts to uh, New Wave which in many ways was exactly the same music just renamed 
new wave so that it could be played on the radio without people objecting to it. Um, right. When the record companies and other people realized that this music wasn't music just for a small group of people, that actually everyone loved this music, or lots of people loved this music, and maybe the only thing they needed to do to convince radio stations was to change the name of the music, not necessarily to change the bands or the band's names at all. Uh, and they changed it from punk to new wave. I, I mean, a lot of people think of them as two different things. I guess I do at times, too. But the truth is, it was a lot of the same musicians. And they just started calling it something different. And it's not like it started in 1980. They were calling Joe Jackson and Elvis Costello new wave in 1977. And they were as much punk as anybody. Right, right. Um, and uh, like it always does, music goes on and people play it. And a lot of this music lives on... You know, Iggy Pop had massive hits in Lust for Life. He sings on... Uh, he sings with the singer... Uh, what's her name? From the B-52s. They have a big hit. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. What's that song? Um, it's the woman that Candy. Sang, right, Candy. Candy, Candy, Candy. Candy. She's the one that sang on the R.E.M. record. Yes, she is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shiny Happy People. Yes. I mean, the Iggy Pop ends up having huge success in a lot of ways, as does Lou Reed. Johnny Lydon starts Public uh, Image. Public uh, Image LTD. Limited. And has massive success there. Sure does. And all of... Uh, listen... MTV launches about a year after, a year and a half after um, the records were playing here, which is the butt end of what we, we've we called the 70s punk retrospective we've done here over these podcasts. But let's be fair. Almost all of the first two years of MTV before the explosion of MTV, Madonna and Michael Jackson, all the bands they're playing are all these bands or some offshoot of these bands or bands that were absolutely born in the wake of these bands. And some of them, the bands themselves. Lou Reed has a fantastic career uh, in the 80s and early 90s. A lot of it runs under the radar, but he has brilliant records that ends up, I think, with New York in 1990 or 89, 90. But, um, you know, he plays... uh, Bob Geldof goes and starts... Live Aid. Live Aid. And uh, stars in the, the Pink Floyd, The Wall, which is... I think an underrated movie. I always love that film. Many of the people that we talked about, and even in the case of New Water, to bring it back, I mentioned to you a little anecdote, um, and, and not really a little anecdote. Two things about Ian. He goes and gets turned on as a teenager by going to see the Sex Pistols. Absolutely wants to be the Sex Pistols. Absolutely is born in that testosterone, I want to get out of my lower middle class existence punk edict. And then... The night that he hangs himself, they find the record is still spinning and, and the needle is cracking up against the, the spindle of Iggy Pop's The Idiot, produced by Bowie, who embraced Lou Reed and, 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 and Iggy. And all this incestuous stuff that we've been talking about, all this stuff has lineage. They're all this, it's a web of all this history. And it all really, I think this is a perfect way to end it. Well, Bernard Sumner, uh, one of the things it says in here is that uh, the band was first formed by Sumner and Hook after the two attended a Sex Pistols gig. Yep. Um, And like the next morning, Hook borrowed 35 pounds from his mother to buy his first bass. You know? And these are not just guys. These are guys like you, man. These aren't just guys who went back to work and decided let's start a band and got in a garage. These are guys who just completely said, this is what I'm doing with my life. And anything else be damned, I'm going to do this. And they stripped away their entire lives, and their whole life was the band. And I had that small period in my life that I did it. You realized it all the way through. But that's what happened to these guys. They went to see the Sex Pistols, and that's it. Their lives changed. It was like everybody seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, or when John Lennon heard 
Heartbreak Hotel crackling over the radio at 12 o'clock midnight and said, before Elvis, there was nothing. Before the Sex Pistols for these gentlemen, there was nothing. And they found their their future. And unfortunately for Ian, it was a short future. But for the band New Water, which was a significant band at the end of this era, and, you know, a significant band that inspired almost all the bands that you heard in the first couple of years of uh, MTV. Absolutely. So we're going to... Sign off of the punk multicast, the punk cast, the four podcast cast. I hope you guys dug it. It was fun doing it. You had fun, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and we're going to end this with uh, a really beautiful, heartbreaking song from Joy Division, 1980, the album Closer. This is Love Will Tear Us Apart, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>